Huh. Now, is that the case in um, New Jersey that, that the legislature, because I know I was surprised, uh, David Nathan, I mentioned he's from New Jersey and it, uh, he did a great job there, as did many other um, groups and organizations uh, getting this passed. Uh, and I was surprised it was now with the legislature to kind of put the details together. And I was surprised about mm. that. So I'm wondering if that, that might be one of those states that they could. Yeah, it, it's, I'm not familiar with New Jersey law. Um, although I grew up just outside of New York City, I, I tried never to go to New Jersey. Um, <laughs> that's, that's my, that's my regional dig. Um, sorry, Jersey. Um, any, anyway, it sounds to me like New Jersey uh, does not have some sort of a voter protection element. It sounds like it based on what you're describing. But to be fair to your question, I really don't know. Okay. Um, other things I would like to see happen uh, with cannabis, and I say cannabis because it's the uh, one that's most likely to be legalized anywhere. Uh, first of all, we need the MORE Act passed. Oh, and, absolutely. <laughs> no, no question. And, and, and the SAFE Act, and with, with, with uh, hopefully with Biden, and I don't know if Mitch is going to let it through the Senate if he lands up still in charge. That would be a, a big problem if he doesn't let it get through. Uh, but certainly with, with, um, the house, uh, I, I think they will. Yeah. And I think Biden, I, I think Biden has come out in favor of it. It's, it's, you know, as, as you're saying, politicians don't listen. I mean, it is so clear that both sides of the aisle are in favor of cannabis. I mean, this is something that the, the politicians should be able to agree on. And yet it's, it's still so difficult. Um, let's see, other things that I would like to see in cannabis laws are automatic expungement. Um, who did that, Illinois or Michigan? Illinois, <laughs> Illinois did automatic expungement. Yeah. Our, our and, new law requires you to apply. You have to, yes, you have to yes. affirmatively ask to be forgiven for something that's not a crime. Very few people apply. Uh, this this has been a real problem wherever it's happened. Uh, first of all, you have to have you have to have an internet connection, probably. Uh, I don't know if it can even be done by mail. It, you have to have it together enough and wherewithal be able to you know hunt through things or hire someone to do it for you. And it turns out very few people apply. And this was a case in California when they signed after the fact 
uh, an expungement a couple of years ago that was automatic unless the DA specifically said, challenged it, it was automatic. Hmm. Um, the social justice issues are important. Uh, you know, that the people of color are the ones that have suffered the most from the criminalization of cannabis. And yet, like everything else, they get left behind. Uh, when the industry starts to bear fruit. And Arizona is about to go down that rabbit hole. So again, sorry to tie it back to us, but again, home turf, it's easy to talk about. Uh, Our new law contains opportunity for 26 social equity licenses. But the way the initiative crafted that particular section, it's very loose and open. And what has to happen now is a board will have to be impaneled in order to establish the criteria and um, figure out who's going to qualify for that social equity preference. Um, And I just have to think that that's going to be one of the most painful boards to be on, because no matter what anybody proposes, there's always going to be somebody else complaining that it's not enough or it's the wrong group or, you know, the description of who qualifies is actually itself racist um, and yikes, you know, it's and best intentions it, are just going to be so, so, so. Painful. Yeah. Um, in 26, how did, what a, what a strange number. How did they come up with 26? Okay. So Arizona's got this whole funky formula for licensure and it's premised at its core on the number of open pharmacies in the state. And so there's this algorithm that you you plug in and it's so many pharmacies per the state, you get one dispensary license available. And if the number of dis- pharmacies go up enough, then there will be more licenses available. That's how we got started 10 years ago with the medical marijuana program. So now the new uh, recreational program that's layered on top of it is going to give the existing medical license holders first crack an opportunity to apply for uh, the recreational license as well. So basically they get, let's just call it what it is, an instant conversion to a full market as opposed to just a medical market. If they want it, they don't have to, but come on, let's be honest, who's going to say no to money? Um, But to fill in some of that extra bandwidth that's now going to be needed to feed the larger market, they picked 26. (laughs) What that number actually is based on, I don't specifically know, but I know it's tied in, in part, to that pharmacy formula. Um, and if you want even wackier, uh, back when the medical marijuana program started here in Arizona, they used this arbitrary political uh, medical map based on CHOVS, a community health assessment area. And that map was established, I think, back in the 50s to dis- to study disease rates and trends in in you know, discrete geographic regions across the state. And that map, I don't think, has much changed over the years. So if you look at it layered on top of, say, the actual geographic map of Arizona, like the cities, it is just helter-skelter. It makes no sense. But the original program stated that they could only issue one license per CHA. And therefore, you had like a bunch of dispensaries that were out in the rural areas uh, sitting in the middle of nowhere, and few, or at least insufficient numbers in deep, dense city areas, because uh, just, you know, you can only serve so many people. Um, thankfully, there's a three-year 
uh, lift rule. So after the first three years of our program, everybody could start to move. So suddenly there was this vacuum in the rural areas as all these poor dying on the vine dispensaries were desperate to get into Phoenix where everybody lives. Um, so I suspect now that I'm saying that out loud that that's also part of where the 26 come from hmm. is to try to get uh, the medical service back out into the rural areas, which are underserved. Wow. And, and uh, another reason for the expungement is that we're talking about, you know, people getting licenses, but, but then there's all the people that work for them. And I don't know if you, if Arizona has a part of their initiative was that people with criminal uh, related offenses for cannabis can't work in dispensaries. And yeah, so, yeah. There's there's some level of exclusion um, with yeah. a, with a date cutoff. So, uh, so which can be five years, you know, a lot of places. So that's um, and that's some, why some of those been, folks, by the way, are master cultivators who should be working yeah. in a cultivation yeah. site. A- yeah. Absolutely, because they've got a skill set yeah. most would be envious of. Um, yeah, and I'm sorry that's still in there. Um, and and the other thing is. Uh, I guess goes along maybe with the more act uh, standardization of labeling, and and I'm bringing this up partly as a, a plug for DFCR. Uh, David Nathan has actually published a kind of uh, optimal labeling um, standardization process. It's it's on our website under authoritative reports. If anybody's interested, um, so it, it would be great if this could be the same from you know, throughout the country, if there was some standardized way of doing all the things we're doing mm. with cannabis. Um, if you've got it committed to memory, what, what are the uh, data points that um, would be on said label? Oh, um, anything that you would be wondering about. So various uh, THCs, uh, CBD, um, you know, the potency, uh, potency per milligram, um, that's all I got. There's a bunch of stuff on there. Uh, all right. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm all for that. I, you know, my, my calculus, and again, this is just me. Um, I'm all for anything that's consumer protection oriented. So anything that gives more data, more information, why wouldn't you want that? Um, you know, so a label that, that even goes down to like the level of terpenes, which is exciting for me. Uh, yeah, I'd want that, of course. I mean, yeah, so terpenes is on their uh, flavonoids. Um, the, my favorite part is actually the the image he has for it. Each state has a different way of showing that it's cannabis, hmm. um, and and I, I really like uh, how he how he portrayed it. Okay, uh, I'll, I will I will certainly check that out. Um, you've had a, a greater than thirty year career. Um, two things. One how does one go about becoming you? Meaning, how does one enter the field of psychiatry, go into a field like addiction or, or something to deal with, with drug studies, et cetera? And um, we'll, we'll start there. So first, let's start with that. Sure. Uh, it's, it's a great question. I went through the MD route. In fact, I was just having a conversation with someone about this who was struggling. Should he go PhD or MD? Um, I, I'm happy I went the MD approach, if, if only from a safety perspective, it gave me a wide latitude of the things I could do. 
things I could do to make a salary. Uh, if you're PhD, you're dependent on funding, uh, but you learn you you you, are, you learn science. You learn how to do research, uh, and you can do it in multiple areas. Um, is, is a PhD, um, whereas as an MD, you're not unless you get a PhD along with it. I, I had a long postdoc at the National Institutes of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, um, so I spent three years there as a postdoc as a fellow. So I, I was able to learn the mechanisms of research. And certainly for the rest of my life, I was learning more and more. I mean, learning fMRI, I didn't learn about it in training and wouldn't have because it didn't exist. Uh, so, so I think that's probably the biggest struggle for someone is, first of all, do you, do you want, if you want to do research, how OC are you? Um, how, how committed do you want to be to a life where it's publish or perish every single day? Um, and, and not so much publish and perish or, but getting grants. So you, it's, you can get tons of pubs, but if you can't get funded for a grant, you're dead. And with the MD, I could always do more clinical work if I needed. Uh, but I was allowed a lot of flexibility, but if you're in a university setting, you, you have to get funding in order to continue your work. So it's, it's not an easy lifestyle. So you have to really want to do this. Um, I would hook, uh, as an undergrad, I would hook up with somebody or even as a high school student, um, if you're allowed in the lab, hook up with somebody that is doing work that you are interested in and do what you can in that lab. Uh, both to learn about it, see if you like doing this, see if you like counting, you know, uh, cells all day, uh, or looking at brain images. Do you have a Do you have a, a knack for physics in which imaging would uh, come a lot easier? It did not for me. Um, uh, so, so is this something you really like to do? Uh, if, if if it's not, but you still are intrigued with hallucinogen. Um, and are thinking about doing therapy, there, there's various routes. Uh, you, can, you can become a therapist, a social worker, a psychologist. Um, so there's various other routes of doing this. You could become a research assistant uh, with an undergrad degree, so, uh, which, which is another route. So do you wanna be in charge? Do you just wanna work in a lab uh, and follow the direction it's going with? Um, and, and certainly there's a number of people, say in Roland Griffith's lab, uh, who are uh, excellent investigators in and of themselves. So you, even when you are starting out as a researcher, after you get your PhD and postdoc, you are still typically in somebody uh, who has already has funding and you, you develop your own career in someone else's lab before you go off on your own. So it's a it's a long process. Sure. Uh, it's nothing quick. Uh, Roland Griffith, um, uh, um, Rick Doblin, you know, they, they've been doing this since I think Rick since the mid eighties. Yeah. Uh, Roland since, uh, in, in the nineties, I believe. So they've been doing this 30 years for them to get at the point where they're to me, household names, uh, but everyone knows who they are, but damn, they started when it was, impossible to do this work 
and, and they had, I wish I would have, but I, I did not have their tenacity or brilliance or vision. Uh, uh, so I, I really admire these guys. Yeah, I, 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 I suspect that it was a uh, uphill in the snow in both directions experience for them, uh, you know, same as for you and for me in our respective niches of our careers. Yeah. So, uh, so, so it's, I, I guess, uh, read up on it and attach yourself to somebody who's doing work in this area. And do you see any particular um, subfields within this discipline opening up? Where should, for example, people be looking to take themselves if they do indeed want to pursue this career path? Where, where do you I, think I, the hot areas are? I, I think um, it, being involved in uh, pre and post psychedelic administration uh, with, with therapists. So being, being a guide, um, or, or being someone who sits there during and, and works with the participant while they're experiencing it and doing therapy beforehand and then helping them integrate afterwards. Yeah. I, I think once these are FDA approved, this is going to explode. Uh, we already see it with ketamine, Yeah, but there needs to be, op- it's always, if it's FDA approved, it's always going to include the pre and post. And this is a great way to enter the field. So any kind of therapist think will be able to assist with that. Um, and, and that would, so from a, a therapeutic perspective, that would be a great place to go. Ooh. Uh, from that, yeah, <laughs> that made me think of something really important. Um, do you envision any circumstance where FDA will approve these substances, you know, be it psilocybin or MDMA, uh, which are the two that are leading right now uh, towards approval, any circumstance where they will approve them outside of a clinical setting, any circumstance where a, a doctor will be able to hand a patient a script and say, go home, fill this, and, and you know, good luck to you. Um, let me also add, I, I did not mention I'm on, on uh, a scientific advisor for Demerex that is looking at uh, using Ibogaine for addiction. Oh, perfect. Um, perfect. It's something we didn't talk about, but, but that's another one that I think is, uh, along with psilocybin, is, and MDMA uh, may be coming along uh, the path in a couple of years. Yeah, and I, I've seen lots about Ibogaine just being really fantastic for addiction treatment. So yeah. uh, very optimistic uh, about that as well. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to imagine uh, it, um, because from a, th- it, from a therapeutic potential, I think it's very important to have the pre and post. Yeah. And, and as you say, they are being incorporated into the, the FDA approval. Um, but, but of course, uh, we all, everyone we know has done it illicitly yeah. uh, and, and has benefited by it. So I, I think the pre and post, um, I'm thinking out loud, the pre and post may still be required, but the criteria for what you, the, the question is, will we be able to have it approved for something that is not a DSM-5 diagnosis? Right. So 
which spiritual enlightenment count? Uh, my favorite is your idea that I talk about a lot now that using, um, uh, what is it, uh, your, your uh, ar- archaic uh, religious practice yeah. of Zeno Simons in Abrahamic religions. Yeah. Uh, and that would be a justification for using. Spe- uh, speaking of, I just want to divert for a second. If you haven't read this yet, I'm, I'm going to do a plug for somebody else here. Um, I just read this a week ago. Let me uh, hold it up there. It's The Immortality Key by Brian Murarescu, who is an ancient languages expert and also a fellow attorney. And I'm, I'm going to do a book review on this for the show. I've actually got a stack of books I read because I was on vacation last week. Uh, I read about six books. Um, anyway, this book, The Immortality Key, Brian has done a deep dive in authentic historical record at the Vatican and other places. And he makes the case, the historical record case, that psychedelics are behind all of what we know as world religion. Uh, I'm not going to say more than that because I don't want to spoil it, but I will tell you, he's an excellent writer. This thing reads like a, like uh, the Da Vinci Code. It comes across like a Dan Brown novel, but instead of being fiction, it's fact, and it's annotated. There's bibliography at the back. Can't say enough good about it. So if you haven't read it yet, read it. <laughs> I have not. I Brian is actually the former executive director of DFCR. Okay, well, there you go. <laughs> So I know him, and I've heard about the book. I, I not appreciated what it was. I actually read The Sacred Mushroom in the Cross when I was in college. Yeah. I had forgotten how steeped I was in this years ago, and I didn't know who John Allegro was. I didn't realize he was a, a famous linguist yeah. and was involved in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, um, so that's a nice continuation of this. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah the, right. I used to have the Trinity, but now we've got the the quadru, I don't know, quadra something, um, whatever the Greek term is. But yeah, you've you, you've got you know archaic revival, uh, the Gnostic Gospels, um, uh, mushroom and the cross, and now this, or excuse me, the the. the Mushroom of the Cross came first, then the Gnostic Gospels. And the Gnostic Gospels is by uh, Jerry Brown. And, and uh, oh, God, I forgot his wife's name, and I don't mean to exclude her. I'm terribly sorry, but she's as important to the book as he is. Um, but they went church hopping around Europe looking for psychedelic iconography. And the book is filled with photos and, and an accounting of their travels. So, yeah, there's four books now that have good, solid, not anecdotal, but actual archival historical record tied to it. So... Yeah, coming full circle to the to the comment that led us off on that tangent, and I'm sorry to have done that to you. Um, yeah, I have a theory that there is an argument to be made in court uh, that people of the Abrahamic faiths have an innate religious right to experience the proto-version of their religion, and the proto-version of their religion embrace these substances. And I agree, that, that would be a much way, a better way to open this up to a broader audience without a lot of the of regulation around it. Yeah. But, yeah. but I, but I do think there is still a place for regulation. Do you think, do you see it happening? Um, where it will be, I mean, Denver, you didn't mention Denver, but we were the first yeah, to and, uh, decriminalize uh, psilocybin. Yeah. Um, I, I think the country's waking up to it, and uh, in point the fact, I've got an article that I'm turning into Psychedelics Today that talks about this. 
And what I'm now pitching and, and, and hoping that I get the attention of a bunch of other lawyers around the country is that in the 14 states that do permit initiatives, I am proposing that we craft a uniform model plant and fungi medicine act and, you know, put all the reasonable stuff in it that any average citizen could look at and say, you know what, that's balanced. It takes safety into account. It's respectful. And let's just run a 14 state campaign to try to flip a third of the country in one election. Because I think if you succeed even in a fraction of that, the rest of the country is going to have to sit up and take notice and say, huh, something's happening here. Plus, if we have a well-crafted model law, they can pull it off the shelf and adopt it, even inside of legislatures through the direct legislative process rather than the initiative process. So that's why when we spoke earlier in the conversation, I was very excited about how the election went. That was an excellent portent as to how such a model initiative would be received. So that is my clarion call out to the public. If you, if you think you'd like to see a change and you think this is a well-reasoned idea, hit me up. All right. So um, what else did we want to cover? We, we have a little bit of time left. We can hit any topic you'd like. I would uh, continue with the uh, election because I think the biggest deal yeah. that I did not even know was on the ballot, um, you know, my bad, is, is the decriminalization of all drugs in Oregon. Yeah. That is absolutely fascinating. Um, and I, I would like to say, well, it'll be a model for us to see how it works. We've already had a model in Portugal. They did this, what, 10, 15 years ago? Yeah. And it's worked out fine. Uh, and so, so they've taken away the criminal element, um, not with getting the drug, that's still there, yeah. but at least for small amounts, it's, uh, it's there. Um, that is such a giant step forward. Oh, ho wholly agree. Um, and, and that was along the concept I mentioned earlier that on the individual level, why would you have it be criminal for the, for the person? You know, if you've got some deep, dark, clandestine lab churning out adulterated products, yeah, sick the cops on them. Absolutely. They need to be taken out because they violate public safety. But for the end user who's just looking for safe and effective uh, medicine that, that they know the source, where's the harm? So would you have, and where, where it, it gets difficult for me, is if someone wants to use heroin, uh now a lot a lot of countries um, have available heroin if you are already uh, addicted to heroin. So they have places, uh, essentially, I guess, supervised injection sites where you can go and administer self-administer heroin. But would we want that available to any adult who wants to go and use heroin? Did they go into a a store and buy some heroin and go use it. Uh, it's or meth. Um, it's it's hard for me to see how that works. I mean, we've seen what happens when we give you know hundreds of thousands of people or millions of people opioids. Uh, it, it created a, a, an epidemic of deaths, and and these were people without addiction problems that we iatrogenically got them addicted. 
So I, I, I'm not clear in my head how that would work. Yeah, I, I, I share that, and I choose philosophically to continue to leave barriers up between classes of drugs and to treat them based on the class because I think that's the easiest way to go about re-regulation. Because um, I also think of heroin as, as the conundrum because if you look across world history, heroin has been at the heart of more public health problems than any other class of drug excluding alcohol. Um, like for example, uh, the opium wars, uh, in China, if, if you look at how the British forced their way into China, got the population addicted and then shot the place up on their way out, you can kind of see a direct line between what happened then and mm-hmm. China political policy today. Like in China, for example, as with most of, of Asia, um, heroin will get you the death penalty even a small amount. They're absolutely and justifiably afraid of it. Mm. Uh, And I don't think we'd ever want to see unleashed on the United States what England did to China with heroin. So I I think, you know, you take a topic like heroin, unrestricted use is a recipe for for problems, no question about it. Psilocybin mushrooms, on the other hand, I just don't see the same thing. I can't fathom it. So, yeah, I'm going to apply a, a, a graduated bias to it by necessity and for lack of a better um, solution. But yeah. I absolutely see people uh, often decrying any form of regulation over any form of drug. Um, I'm sorry, I'm just not prepared to go there. I'm open-minded to it if somebody can, can pitch me convincingly. I just haven't had anybody pitch me convincingly. Uh, I, I know there's a, a guy, um, uh, Uncle Mike, uh, you may know him. He's uh, kind of got a name uh, as a historian in the cannabis world, uh, and he's in the area, and we had a great lunch uh, several months back. And he said he gets hassled more by the police now than he did when it was illegal. He, he hates, uh, he feels it normal, and DPA and, and uh, MPP came in and and took over the what they had hoped to happen in Colorado, which was a legalization and not a regulation. Uh, so so I, I agree with you. There's people that speak out loudly against where we are with this. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we're um, I guess we're pretty straight uh, folks in the I mean, I'm a doctor. You're a lawyer. We still. Yeah. Uh, I, I was once telling my kids I'm a rebel, and my ten-year-old said, "Dad, you're you're a psychiatrist." And my son, thirteen, said, "And you work for the U.S. government." <laughs> yeah. Well, look, we I we take our profession seriously. We take our licensure seriously. I know where the boundaries are. I don't like to push them too much because they push back, and there's career repercussion. Um, but you know, you go where you can go. Um, but I, I think that uh, the libertarian perspective on drug policy, where it's just a free-for-all, do-as-thou-wilt, is not a good recipe. And, and, and it's not for lack of certain individuals having enough presence and self-control that they wouldn't screw it up. But we all know every neighborhood's got the asshole. Every neighborhood's got the guy who you know doesn't cut their lawn or leaves the car up on cement blocks in the front yard. Every neighborhood's got that guy. And do you really want to live in a world where it's do whatever you want? 
and trust that everybody's going to be responsible and respectful. I just don't see it happening. I wish it were, but there's always an asshole out there. Yeah, um, I uh, hesitant to equate addiction with asshole. Well, I didn't. I didn't mean addicts. I just meant you know anybody oh, abusing uh, the privilege, whatever that well, may be. Or, or is is just so vulnerable uh, because of environmental or genetic reasons to addiction that unknowingly, uh, if you just give somebody easy access to things, uh, the likelihood of a large number of people running into problems is, is very high. Yeah. And, and can those folks be, um, identified and made aware that they have those propensities so that they can be given, uh, the tools and assistance to avoid the problem or deal with the problem? They, they could, if we, if we paid attention, um, most any kid who grew up in a household with an addicted parent grows up thinking, uh, for instance, a son of a, a somebody with alcohol use disorder grows up saying, I'm never going to drink. Mm. Uh, because in fact, because of both their environment and primarily because of their genetics, they are at high risk of developing an alcohol use disorder. But they don't land up doing that. They do land up drinking and running into problems. So the risk of inheriting an addictive disorder is the same as the risk of inheriting Huntington's, which is 50%. Uh, so you can look at your family history. Do you have severe trauma in your life? Do you have coexisting psychiatric disorders uh, with cannabis? <clears throat> if you have a family history of schizophrenia, um, you have probably an increased risk of running into significant problems with cannabis. So we can identify those people. We don't need brain imaging. We don't need genetic counseling. We can say you have a high likelihood, but <clears throat> number one, doctors don't do it. And people don't keep, even recovering people don't teach this to their kids. So uh, yeah, there is a way to identify the vulnerability, but number one, it's not a hundred percent. And number two, we're not doing it. Well, there again, it's going to be real interesting to watch Oregon because they're, they're taking that focus away from criminality, which is no longer, to public health. And I, it's going But to be... I don't think that's going to increase. Based on Portugal, it did not increase use. Right. So just decriminalizing right. it did not increase use. And in fact, it made them more likely to get into treatment. Exactly. And that was exactly my point, is, is the, the people who maybe need the help and weren't aware they needed it or didn't have the resource are now both going to have the resource and be given the opportunity to be aware instead of putting them in jail. Correct. Which does no good for any of them. And, and you and I as taxpayers get the privilege of paying for all that and get that's nothing true. back for the investment, nothing, you know, cause that, that's, that's an ongoing problem with just American criminal justice in its totality, because we really don't offer people solid rehabilitation and retraining while they're in. There are programs, but it's not real fo the real focus of it. Yeah. You know, we're much more about punishment and retribution than we are about rehabilitation. And and people say the uh, war on drugs has been a failure. I, I think it's been actually a great success mm -hmm. because the purpose of the war on drugs was never about substance use. It was about disenfranchising black and brown people. Yes. That was always the name of why we needed these drug laws. 
And it's been highly successful in doing that. Uh, the number in prison, the number who can't vote because of prior records, the number on par parole or probation is enormous. It's, it's unlike anything else in any other country. And this is because of the drug war. So it's, uh, it's worked out very well for those who were aiming to discriminate against people of color. Yeah, to totally agree. It, it replaced Jim Crow. Yes. And, and historical timing, it's exactly that, both yeah. in fact and in, in, in circumstance. So wholly agree. All right. Well, we've been going for about an hour. No, oh my God, or hour and 40 minutes. This has been fascinating. Um, yeah. I would love to have you back anytime. Uh, you are a great, great, great conversation, sir. I really appreciate it. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I had no idea we were talking for that long. Yeah. Well, that's how you know it's a good conversation. It just flows. Yeah. Have a question about psychedelics and the law? You're welcome to submit them. Please send your questions to admin at psychedelicalex.com. Submission of questions is not an assurance that they will be used on the show. Also, please be aware that neither the submission of a question nor a response creates an attorney-client privilege between you and the show's host, nor does an answer constitute legal advice. Information provided is for general purposes only. If you need legal counsel, you should hire competent counsel in your community. Thank you.